0: This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn.
1: Hey, Carl.
2: Hey, can you hear me okay?
1: Yes, sir. It was on my end. How are you doing?
2: Yeah, not too bad in yourself.
1: Good. Appreciate you taking the time on. Was it Friday afternoon for you?
2: Yeah, yeah. Last item on, of the week.
1: <sighs> well, between you and happy hours, so we'll uh, we'll get this knocked out. But thanks for doing it.
2: Yeah, no, no. Thanks, thanks for inviting. Looking forward to it. So, how about I like, jump on with uh, kind of my background and then a bit about Elstone and its background. So, my background is um, primarily come on the body side. I've been a commodity trader in prop shops and private funds in Ireland and across North America. So I started off trading in the traditional prop shop model and traditional commodity markets. But I ended up specializing in a a niche commodity market where I traded the price of electricity across the US wholesale grid from an energy and congestion standpoint. So I did that for a few years in North America in private funds before moving into the hedge fund industry, where I was a hedge fund manager with the multi-strat in New York City. And that investment manager also ran a fund of hedge fund business as well. So on top of running the internal power strategy, I also sat on the manager side of the table at the Miami Context Summit, uh, learned all about the due diligence process and the fund of fund side and built up some relationships there as well. So I moved back to Ireland about three years ago. Um, I've worn a few different hats of being head of trading for US power for a private firm that wanted to grow into that area. Uh, I sit in the uh, faculty of Ireland's top university, where I work in the master's of finance program. Uh, I primarily supervise the students' research theses and produce research myself. I've published macroeconomic research with uh, a top-tier academic journal and then do some shorter research notes across different strategies, markets, and investor processes. Um, But I also started Ace Capital Investments, which was an alternative investment consultancy, where I built out the... Investment philosophy, strategy, manager sourcing channels, manager analysis models and ODD framework and I ended up working with a few European family offices uh, that came to me to help them diversify their portfolio. I moved all of that infrastructure in with Athlon family office uh, and there we had four different arms, so three of them investment related, private equity, trade finance and hedge funds. And then we also had a sports and education arm as we worked with a number of ex-professional athletes as well. And then from there, I moved in as the Chief Investment Officer with Elkstone. So to give a, a little bit of background on Elkstone, I'm both a family office and a multifamily office. So our founder and principals use Elkstone as their personal investment vehicle and invest their personal wealth through that vehicle, but we're also a fully regulated multifamily office as well where we look after many Irish entrepreneurs and high net worth individuals, where essentially we enable co investment access into our principal's investment portfolio. The background of Elkstone has been around for about 10 years, primarily focused in venture and real estate. So within venture, um, we have a portfolio of about 38 direct companies. We primarily go in at around A, pre A, and seed relatively sector agnostic, but like tech-enabled companies to facilitate um, global growth. Um, It's about 50% Irish founders, 50% international, a great track record, two of our portfolio companies became unicorns about two months ago, and we actually run a venture club as well, which I think is pretty unique and a really good foot in the door to the Irish uh, venture ecosystem so if there is a deal that we're personally investing in and there's enough capacity we'll send it out to our venture club which has about 150 high net worth individuals where it's an opt-in opt-out basis with a very very small um, investment amount of 25,000. so they're able to access and co-invest in this exact same companies that we hold in our personal venture portfolio and then on the real estate side if you think about the real estate market in three different risk areas. So you've planning risk, you've construction risk, and you've investment risk. We don't do much in the investment risk side, but we'll do some planning risk where we go and buy a piece of land, get planning permission on it, which increases the value of the land and then sell it on. And then we'll also take on construction risk, um, primarily across residential and student-built accommodation. Uh, There's been a 100% Irish market focus because of number one, our connections here, but number two, and primarily the the structural supply deficit that exists in in the Irish real estate market. Um, We have done some international before, but over the last four years, it's been all Ireland. And in the next three years, we expect it to continue on there. So really what I'm coming in now, I'm building out our diversified holistic portfolio. So we're not so focused and heavily concentrated in real estate and venture. So if you picture, you know, the traditional asset classes coming down the columns. So we've equities, we've debt and we've alternatives, and then across the rows we have liquid and illiquid. That essentially gives us six different blocks. We've liquid equities, illiquid equities, liquid alternatives, illiquid alternatives. And I'm building out our internal portfolio within each of those blocks where real estate and venture end up just being our internal portfolio in two of those six blocks, but we're building out um, all six blocks for more diversified, holistic investment portfolio for both our principals, but then also our multifamily office clients as well.
1: Got it. Thank you. That's super helpful. And and I want to kind of back up a little bit. I ask everybody in your position or in your world the same question, because I think it's fascinating. Could you provide your definition of what a family office is
2: yeah absolutely so for us a family office is an entity that's created to look after all affairs investment and non-investment for usually a single principal or an individual family so look after the investment portfolio in-house the estate planning and legal any philanthropy work and so on so primarily it's that entity that's set up to look after the wealth of one principal or one family.
1: And you know, given your background in more traditional, you know, financial services, um, hedge fund space or uh etc., what have you seen are the main differences of how you go about your day-to-day investment decision-making process working for a family or a, a, a consortium of families versus you know, a GP manager style?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So it's actually a really interesting question. And this is something that I've spoken to, you know, our investment analyst as well, because he also came from the trading floor within the prop shop world uh, before joining us on Elkstone too. And really, at the GP level, it's very much focusing on. Your one strategy, your one return stream, and trying to make it as robust as possible. And really, you start to get tunnel vision into that one strategy and try for it to be the all-weather return stream out there for you know your client or your investor. So I think the primary difference is being within the family office or multi-family office space is being able to step back and look at the whole investment universal portfolio as a whole those six different blocks that I mentioned previously and saying utilize this entire investment universe and all the traditional asset classes to essentially create one robust all-weather return stream Um, by by being able to invest and bring in multiple different return streams across the three or six different blocks that each have a positive expectancy. they, They each We believe that each return stream will bring in profit, but each return stream also acts in a complementary way. And that's much easier to get complementary return streams across multiple asset classes than it is in one individual return stream. I think that's the biggest change from moving from a trader on a trading floor or a hedge fund manager for a GP to now the LP side or allocator side. It's really sitting back And not focusing on that one return stream and trying to make that all weather, but using all the tools and investment universe and options you have in front of you to build a robust, all weather, diversified portfolio.
1: Yeah, I think that answer makes a lot of sense because, you know, your time horizon is different, right? Your cost of capital is different and it's not necessarily a rolling quarterly total return type strategy and your allocation has to reflect that right
2: yeah i think kind of to further that point you know family offices as opposed to gps as you said they have a longer term time horizon but they also have their own unique needs and that's where we look at you know the three blocks that make up our liquid portfolio and then the three blocks that make up our illiquid portfolio and they both serve very different purposes you know whether a client or a principal or a family office needs more income to pay expenses, then that would increase the allocation into the liquid portfolio. If people are okay and don't require much liquidity for income and expenses, then really more money can funnel into the illiquid or high growth strategies where we're really trying to nail on a higher return um, by utilizing the different investment vehicles on offer within an, illiquid liquid platform
1: than there is in a liquid platform, and your comment about how Elkstone formed was really interesting to me because we've seen that fact pattern play out in a, in the U.S. quite a bit, right? A large single family office starts getting inbounded by their friends and their you know other folks that want to utilize their investment managers or their back office, and there's you know scale that you can achieve there and efficiencies. Are you seeing that play out across Ireland and the rest of Europe as well?
2: Yeah, I think so. And I think our venture club is kind of the perfect example there. So we've been very active in the venture space in the Irish ecosystem for a number of years and become quite well known in it. And that has a number of advantages, including uh, deal sourcing and deal flow, but also having that infrastructure to be able to access that deal flow. and run the due diligence and understand whether it could be a suitable investment or not. And I think with the Irish market in particular, you know, Ireland wouldn't be known as one of the wealthiest countries in the world, but there are a number of um, you know, very successful entrepreneurs who built up a company and, and had a liquidity event and now sit on 10 million or 20 million or 40 million cash that they need to then invest themselves without ever having been in the industry. And the family office world in Ireland just isn't a very, very large one. So it's quite natural for our family office to open itself up given the infrastructure and deal sourcing and reputation that we have in the country to be able to look after some of those entrepreneurial clients that you know obviously have have produced significant wealth for themselves but it's not at a level that you may find in in other countries where it warrants setting up your own family office for example so that venture club is a really nice way of introducing what a family office and private market deal flow is to some of these entrepreneurs that had a liquidity event that just wouldn't have those sourcing channels available to them, you know, without this type of infrastructure.
1: So let's get granular on the Venture Club, because that sounds pretty cool. How did it come about? How does it work? How has it changed? And what are the most exciting opportunities that you're seeing today?
2: So one of the really cool things about our venture club is I just think it's fantastic foot in the door into what a family office is into private market deal flow. So I think what one of the best things for clients or members is the fact that it's not a fund. There is no management fee. It's free it's free for you to become a member and we're fully regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland so there is an onboarding process for AML and KYC, but it doesn't cost any money at all. And if you put your hand up for an investment in into any of the individual deals, again, there's no management fee. We, we charge a 20% carry upon successful exit, and, and that's the only fee that there is. Um, so it's a really nice foot on the door because it's, it's deal by deal, and there's really strong financial alignment. If we send out any deal to the venture club, Our Venture Club members already know that we've personally committed money into the deal. So let's just say, for example, and I'm making these numbers up, there's, you know, 2 million capacity in the deal. We put in, let's say, 250,000 internally, our principals and founders do. It goes out to the Venture Club. The members can opt in, put in as little as 25,000 each. If they fill the rest of the capacity, fantastic. If they don't, then we'll fill the remaining capacity that's, a, that's available. Um, so I think it's a really, really unique way for financial alignment, access to the deal flow that we've already sourced and analyzed. And we give you access to all of the diligence that we've run as well as access to the investment analyst that's brought it from you know, the start to the finish. Um, the downside would be because it's deal by deal, you know, it can take that bit longer to get this efficient diversification that you require. That would be the downside of it, but the upsides are are enormous. We will be looking to open up our own venture fund, hopefully by the end of this year, given the success that, we, that we've had, uh, extremely strong IRRs over, over the last few years. Um, but nothing will change with the Venture Club that's going to remain in place. And I think it's a great, as I said, foot in the door. And we look after not only Irish, but we have not only Irish members, but we have international members as well who want access to the, the venture ecosystem within Ireland.
1: Yeah, so that was going to be my next question. Are these mostly domestic type, you know, Irish-based companies or the, the opportunities themselves are international?
2: Yeah, so uh, the, the underlying investments themselves, we have a preference for Irish and Irish fa- founders. Um, uh, roughly, when you look at our portfolio currently, there's about 50% Irish founders, but that doesn't mean they only operate in Ireland. We want to make sure that global growth is, uh, can be enabled and hopefully we're able to succeed in that. But roughly 50% are Irish founders, 50% are international
1: and it, it, what I've seen that's really compelling about these type of setups, organizations, is that there is a bit of a virtuous you know, cycle or, or flywheel that occurs where you know, you've got ultra high net worth individuals who are entrepreneurs that have liquidity events or still have operating companies that can be industry experts sourcing these deals themselves because they obviously know other entrepreneurs that they can then participate and bring those opportunities to the broader network, et cetera. Have you seen that play out as well?
2: Yeah, I I think that's one of the, you know, the, the the standard positives of a multifamily is Look, as you said, a lot of family offices can be created because an individual built up a company with very, very successful operates in a certain industry, knows that industry very well and has strong deal flow uh, within that industry. If they can't fill the deal themselves, they'll, then pass the same deal onto to other family offices that are within their network. So being part of a multi-family office means that we have relationships with many different family offices and high net worth individuals, and we're able to share deal flow with our client base, but also other family offices as well. You know, I sit on family office investor roundtables across the UK and the US where you know, we, we look at sharing that deal flow. Um, so it, it is really, really important uh, component. And, and one of the strong advantages of working with a multifamily office.
1: When I was looking at your website, there's obviously a, a, a very large focus towards what I would call private or alternative opportunities, right? The venture club, you're very uh, oriented towards real estate, et cetera. Given the fee compression we've seen in the financial services space, especially in the wealth management channel, I personally think that this type of access to alternatives or the the ability to have um, a, a menu of options is is a necessity right now. Are you seeing the same push from your LPs and prospects that they are expecting these type of sourcing opportunities, or is it or is it still kind of a a burgeoning area where uh, you all are are ahead of the curve in that way.
2: Yeah, I I think it's a little bit of both. We we fully agree that uh, we think significant investment and allocations will move into alternatives. If you were to take a step back though and just look at the market we're in being Ireland, Ireland wouldn't have a very, very strong alternative core. There's a lot of fixed income and and a lot of equity funds that are out there within Ireland. Um, And that's why, you know, we believe that we can be the go-to place in Ireland for alternative investments because of our real estate, because of our venture, because of the internal hedge fund portfolio I'll be building out, because of the internal managed futures portfolio that I'll be building out. And we think it's extremely important because if you look at the traditional asset classes, kind of liquid equity, liquid fixed income you know, it, it it's the outlook is is struggling, right? You can argue that equity markets are have are very very hot, highly valued. Um, when central bank banks start tightening their monetary policy, we could see some serious turbulence there. Uh, fixed income markets are providing negative yield; they've kind of lost their portfolio diversification benefits in this interest rate environment. So what has been the core of many portfolios over the last multiple decades is starting to struggle. And that means that we believe that flow will move into kind of both a liquid, as I said, we still have a liquid alternatives option, which looks at the likes of trend following and commodity markets and strategy-based strategies, essentially, that can complement liquid equities and liquid fixed income. But absolutely, we believe that um, more and more, uh, allocation and investment is going to move towards alternatives because of the opportunity set there and the outlook, uh, medium to long term outlook in the traditional equity markets and fixed income market.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think it is the value proposition for what we in the US would be, you know, independent RIAs or multifamily offices. And um, it's only going to increase, in my opinion.
2: And, and one thing that I think as well, Brian, one thing. Because we're a family office, this is what I say, we don't have access to what I call the family office investment universe. Now, now what does that mean? If you look at any advi- large advisor, large wealth manager, large fund themselves, if they're looking after institutional clients, the characteristic of institutional clients is that there's a lot of money to be moved. And because of that, they have to install quite a high minimum capacity threshold. Now, what we're, what we're you know, there's an asset manager here, for example, that won't look at a hedge fund unless it's managing 500 million AUM or above. That means that they're forced to overlook any manager that has 50 million, 100 million, 200, 300, 400 million. And because we're a family office and look after other entrepreneurs, our bite size is quite a bit smaller and that enables us to get access to those strategies, markets, and managers that our peers, our large peers are forced to overlook. And what I think where the real benefit from that comes from is when we look at our illiquid portfolio, we want to make sure that we're getting something very different from our hedge funds than we are getting in our liquid ETFs. And the way to do that is by looking at, the investment structure characteristics, right? And hedge funds, for example, are not an asset class. You can, hedge funds can trade a thousand different strategies across a de- thousand different markets. So, saying you're invested or have 10 million in hedge funds or 20 million in hedge funds as a, at a high level doesn't actually mean very much. What matters is the strategies and the markets that those hedge funds are operating in. And we want to make sure, for example, our hedge fund return streams cannot be replicated by our, our liquid return streams. So to give an example of that, we want to say, let's look at equity market, for example, or let's look at copper. That's a fantastic example. If we want exposure to the copper market, we can buy you know, an ETF for 25 basis points. And if copper move from 10,000 to 12,000, that's fantastic. We're able to make that 20% uh, spending 25 basis points. So if we're now looking and considering a hedge fund manager within the copper market, they have to bring us something very different because we don't want that overlapping exposure or that systematic exposure that we can get for very cheap. So there's quite a well-known copper exchange arbitrage out there between COMEX and LME. Uh, It's fundamentally driven, it fundamentally moves apart, and it fundamentally comes back together. But that trade setup, you're going long copper in, in one exchange, short copper in the other exchange, So you're not directly exposed to that 10 to 12,000 move in the copper market. You're taking advantage of some of a structural inefficiency within the copper market that you can only get access through a hedge fund vehicle and not an ETF. And if you actually look at those two return streams, there's about a 7% correlation between them both. So I think that, that shows a good example of what we look for in the different investment vehicles. And here's a characteristic of structural inefficiencies or idiosyncratic risk and unique price movements is that they're inherently capacity constrained. Because if they could take a huge amount of capacity, they would start to impact the general market. So when we're looking at a hedge fund manager, we want managers that are able to isolate their returns in these unique price movements. And the example that I that, that I can give is, you know, just a high-level anecdote is it's this. S&P 500, there's 500 companies out there. Let's say we can only put $1 into any individual company. Now, again, if the S&P 500 moves up 20%, we can make that 20% on $500 worth of investment. But if there was a unique price movement, let's say one of those companies had a bankruptcy event, that doesn't affect the other 499. So there's one company in there that has a unique price movement, which will bring you in alpha and diversification. If you want your hedge fund to isolate their return stream on that unique price movement, they can only put $1 to work. Their capacity constraint up $1. If you then start looking at the really, really large funds, they have to put $5 or $10 to work. So they may have caught that bankruptcy event, but they still had $4 and $9 kind of that following the market and therefore their return stream is significant overlapping exposure. So because we're able to Operate within the family office investment universe—that that lower level capacity—we're able to pick out strategies, markets, and managers that are able to isolate their return streams from on that one dollar bankruptcy move that our very very large peers can't.
1: And the the family office space or industry—I've been around it since I married my wife, so call it fifteen years. It's matured significantly. Would you agree with the sentiment that at this point, family offices, multi-family offices, this private capital is really become its own industry within the financial services ecosystem?
2: Yeah, I, I think so. And I think one thing that I've found is a trend away from family office capital, a trend away from being LP investors in private equity funds and venture fund to being direct investors within them, you know, and that's a combination of they want financial control over their investments. They want more transparency on their investments, and they're able to sit on the boards and increase their returns because they're not paying, um, you know, the significant fees. So I think that's one example of kind of agreeing with the statement that that you made. That certainly getting a lot more sophisticated. Um, you know, the networks are building up for the for the private family office deal deal flow. Uh, so it's extremely important to be going to these peer events and, and networking with other family offices to be able to share that deal flow amongst each other because there is a lot more direct investment now than, than there used to be. Family offices are, are getting a lot more sophisticated. But it's still worth noting that there's going to be a number of family offices that are still, you know, a one-man investment team or one-person investment team that will still be very heavily reliant on their network. They may have expertise in one or a few industries, but if they want to diversify their portfolio, they're going to be very heavily reliant on somebody within their network that they trust that's an expert in that industry and then do follow investment as opposed to lead investment in those individual or direct deals.
1: Yeah, I I agree. I I think people are getting savvier about fees. And I think at this point, Families are not just acting as LPS in some of these opportunities. they are themselves doing direct deals. And it's interesting seeing Wall Street roll out some of these continuation funds, which are twenty plus year duration. And there's obviously opportunity set there, but I think part of it is because they're getting competition from some of these larger families that have more flexibility. they don't have the to, you know, refund their LPs and cycle out every 10 years, they can hold an asset long-term and it makes them much more competitive on the investment side. And so you're seeing Wall Street create products to to compete against that as well. Have you seen something similar within your experience?
2: Well, not identical, but I I think you can make an analogy between the example that you just said, and even for example, hedge fund fees, right? where you're able to, you you see hedge fund fees are lowering, and that's a combination of increased sophistication in family office and investors in general, but also the market conditions that hedge funds were within. You know, it's very difficult to for active management to outperform a big beta bull run when you have to consider firstly how competitive uh, the big public markets are, and then you have to overcome the, the, the layer of fees as well. So I think we are starting to see that. And that just goes back to the point that family offices in general are starting to get more sophisticated and multifamily offices are getting more sophisticated as well.
1: So given this, you know, we're, we're recording this in August of 21. Given this run-up in equity markets, the continued underperformance of fixed income, um, how what is the right way to think about diversification? If you're a high net worth individual or a family office right now,
2: yeah, that's an interesting question. Again, and, and let's let's actually touch on one of the hot topics: fixed income and uh, the yield and uh, replacing that yield. So, I think if, if we if we think of fixed income again, we need to just like we look at investor characteristics, institutional, you know, big size, family office, smaller size. We look at characteristics between. Um, ETFs and uh, hedge funds, for example, there are characteristics of our fixed income portfolio that you need to look at. And it's not just yield, it's it's liquid and income generating. It's traditionally provided you a reasonable real rate of return. And really importantly, the the third characteristic is the traditional historical high negative correlation uh, with equity markets, which became... PMs and investors' best diversification tool. So when we in Elstone are thinking about replacing fixed income in our portfolio, it's not just the yield, it's all three of those components. It's it's, it's replacing it with something liquid. It's replacing it with something with a real reasonable return. And it's replacing, really importantly, that high negative correlation or to put it in another way, you know, some form of portfolio, equity portfolio protection. And we found a lot of people are kind of moving down the credit grades to be able to get increased yields to try to replace that. And in my opinion, I don't think that's the best way to go because I still don't think you're getting fairly rewarded, you're getting a high interest rate but I don't think it's a fair interest rate for the actual risk you're taking on, and that's being driven by central bank intervention and then buying directly. Um, We also see people going, moving from liquid credit to illiquid credit. Um, again, Again, that will do a good job with increasing the yield, but you lose your liquidity characteristic and you lose your portfolio protection from the high negative correlation characteristic. So one thing that we walk out is absolutely, we will do some more alternative lending, whether that's in real estate bridge lending internally, or sometimes we'll do some alternative lending to uh, some of our portfolio uh, venture companies. We actually, I wrote a piece on Kaya, I think, about a, a year and a bit ago, maybe even two years ago now. I can't remember the date it was published. And I actually recommended Liquid trend following, short term trend following as a potential replacement for fixed income. It replaces it, it's it's super liquid. You get a daily liquidity, just like traditional fixed income. It brings you in on average about 6% annualized, which is a a fine, reasonable rate of return. But really importantly, short term trend following actually exhibits the same safe haven characteristics that, that fixed income and gold have. But it and so that's when looking at it when equities are dropping. So you are getting that equity drop portfolio protection through trend following that you get through fixed income and that you can get through gold as well, another strong safe haven. And it's funny because when I suggest that it's it's met with a lot of puzzled faces and say, Oh yeah, we moved out of trend following because it did so you know it's done so badly over the last ten years. So yeah, absolutely it has, but that's because the market conditions it does quite well in, which is equity dropping. We haven't seen much of that over the last ten years, right? So so it hasn't done well. But when you look at portfolio construction, you go out of the trader head and say, I don't want my one return stream to do well. I'm perfectly fine with trend following not doing well over the past 10 years because because it's being complemented by a really strong liquid equity portfolio and growth. And we need to look at these return streams coming together and complementing each other. So if we go into a different market environment than we've seen in the last 10 years in equities, fixed income isn't providing us a yield and down at these interest rate levels, we've lost significant portfolio diversification benefits. But if we do see these equities dropping, which you know there's a fairly reasonable chance of it at some stage over the, ne- the next few years, uh, I actually think liquid uh, trend following is a very good alternative and replacement for fixed income because it touches on those three characteristics of fixed income, and not just the the yield replacement. And trend following is is going to be part of our internal alternatives block.
1: Well, we'll have to do a follow up in a year or two and see <laughs> and see what you think. I mean, the timing of this conversation is interesting, given you know the Fed had their their annual kumbaya uh this morning and it was kind of more of the same
2: uh I think. An annual pump up. <laughs> yeah
1: i mean the the jock jams uh i guess it was done virtually this year but and i haven't checked the markets but i think they're pretty muted if i had to guess um, yeah
2: I, I i watched the event as well and similar not much of a change
1: yeah i mean we may start tapering sometime soon maybe we'll let you know <laughs> i mean yeah. more of the same
2: Um, And I was actually quite interested by their dance around inflation and uh, the need for inflation protection or the the longevity of inflation as well. They they really don't seem to, to like admitting that it's there.
1: Yeah, well, and this is a whole different kettle of fish, but in my opinion, inflation is real, but it is completely, the dispersion is very unequal. Right in terms of where you are within the ecosystem of the of the economy, um, in terms of how real it feels to you or not, and so unfortunately, there's a, I think there's just the Fed is dealing with having to go beyond its dual mandate and start to of have to become a bit of a social warrior, and it's just a real challenge for them because they do not have the tools or even the vocabulary to handle it. But there's increasing pressure there. Um, well, I can tell
2: you a lot of family office investment committee meetings. Inflation is a topic. Uh, protecting against inflation is a very, very real topic that family the office investment committees. And, and by the way, trend following is pretty well in that, in that situation too.
1: So as we wrap up here, because you touched so many different parts of, of um, investing, what are kind of your best ideas or your most exciting places that you're putting money to work today? And then after that, I want to hear like, what are you most scared about?
2: So... I tell about exciting but what I will say is that there is we have an investment philosophy that that governs our diversified investment portfolio and you know that there are a few rules that we have and that's regardless of the market that we're looking at regardless of the strategy that we're looking at but that we need to be very very disciplined on because I think that the overriding goal for for us and for long term capital is to not have to make correct directional subjective investment decisions to make money. So the goal, for example, in our across our liquid block, which is you know three liquid block three blocks across the three different asset classes, is to make sure that we're utilizing the correct strategy for the market's characteristics in order to expect a positive return from that strategy or allocation and have each of those return streams be complementary to each other in different market conditions so we can sleep well at night so if we hear news of you know if the fed said something crazy today and and it would stress markets out we have complementary return streams that should do well on its own right um you know over a market cycle but also, Complement each other. So, if something crazy in equities happens, or or in interest rates, or you know, if you hear some sugar headline news, you're still going to be able to sleep at night because you know that that you're fairly well protected because of the complementary return streams. So, for for us, actually, it's not trying to to pick where markets are going to go within our liquid portfolio. It's very much on um, just trying to make sure we built. A very solid, robust return stream across all the different uh, asset classes. So probably not not the answer that you wanted to hear in terms of excitement, but I think it's the way that that we view it. And then then I'll probably be able to answer your question uh, this way. Now, we look at our illiquid portfolio, and that's really where we look for our growth, utilising the more illiquid investment vehicles, hedge funds we see, private equity, private capital, uh, sorry, private credit, to in order to go after some of the more exciting. So to give you an idea of where we utilize a lot of hedge funds can be, I love small inefficient markets. My background is in niche commodity trading. I love power markets. They're incredibly inefficient. And they're in- inefficient for a number of reasons, but they're very capacity constrained. So they actually get overlooked um, quite a lot. So I care more about the exciting small inefficient markets than making a directional play on it. You know, shipping, for example, power, regional carbon, uh, they're some of the areas that, that that I care about the most, but not because of the current macroeconomic condition, but because of the market itself, regardless of the macroeconomic condition.
1: Well, I think your first answer was very well said from a family office executive. So I think that's the right way to think about it from that perspective. And uh I'm going to have to look into power markets. I don't know much about it other than Texas is a mess. Uh, So we're going to (laughs) go from there. Well, Carl, I want to thank you for joining us on what is for you a Friday afternoon, evening time slot in the summer. We're standing between you and and happy hours. So thank you for carving out some time. And if people are interested, you you create some really good content. You're a good follow on LinkedIn. Um, If people are interested in just connecting with you, learning more about what you're focused on. And then also, if they're interested in learning more about Elkstone, what, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you?
2: Yeah, so so my personal email address is K Rogers, that's R-O-G-E-R-S at elkstone As you said, I'm relatively active on LinkedIn, and we're actually just about to start putting out some content now as well, kind of more or less weekly, bi-weekly pieces where I write up how our investment philosophy is being inserted, what we look at in terms of different markets and strategies and, and how we're building our six different blocks. And you know we'll be able to sign you up to the distribution list to, to receive those on an ongoing basis. Or you know the easiest way is that that email address So just uh, follow me on LinkedIn, send me a message on LinkedIn.
1: Carl, thank you for the time. Awesome to sit down and talk to you and hope you have a great weekend.
2: Lovely, thanks a million.
1: Have okay. a great one.
0: Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn.